0: Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt. For those of you who don't know me, um, I have the privilege of, bringing, of sharing the sermon this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 34 through 47. And while you guys are opening up to there, I'm going to open us up in prayer and I give a little intro before we begin. Lord, thank you so much for our family. I, I'm so grateful because I know what the sermon's about today, and so many things that have already been laid as groundwork early on in this service go together with what this passage teaches us. Lord, it, that, that we are family and being together is terribly important. And and sin is a failure and inescapable. And because of that, it creates separation between us and our neighbors because we want to uh, extract from them things to amass comforts for ourselves. But it also creates separation between us and you because you cannot dwell in the midst of our imperfection. Lord, as we open up in Mark 15 today, It's my prayer, Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would speak mightily. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today's sermon is entitled, The Death of the Son of God. In opening up this sermon, I want to talk a little bit about isolation. In this current season, with the stay-at-home order and all this quarantining stuff, many people, myself included or being overwhelmed with the isolation of cabin fever. That being said, it doesn't seem like isolation is something unique to this stay-at-home order, this quarantine season. As much as that is a new season, uh, historically unique, the isolation is not that unique. It seems to be part of the human condition to constantly feel alienated, to feel separated and alone, like like you're always on the outside. And for me, it often feels like everyone else has gotten the program of what social normalcy is, except for me. And I always feel like I'm trying to play catch-up, to be uh, as, as accepted as everyone else, to be as normal as everyone else. And whether it was the awkward years of junior high, or even to today, something about being human tears us up and we constantly feel separated and isolated and alone. Adolescents feel it, children feel it, and I myself, as a 29-year-old, even in the midst of a house where I've got six other people living in here. I still feel alienated and isolated. We people don't respond well to separation from others. And this morning, as we go into this passage, we're going to talk about how there is a chief isolation condition in the lives of humans. In the nature of who we are born to be, there's a primary relationship from which there is we we experience separation and isolation, there's a strained relationship, and that's our relationship with God. Now, I wonder, just to put a little thought in your head, I wonder if the reason why isolation, alienation, loneliness, longing is such a part of the human condition, I wonder if that comes from the fact that deep within our hearts, there's this primary strained relationship between us and our creator God. So this week, we're going to finish the sermon series, Paradox, The Identity of Jesus in Light of the Cross. This series has followed Mark's telling of the passion narrative. So from Jesus's arrest to his trial to his crucifixion. And the way that Mark has organized this is he's highlighted different titles and and offices that Jesus has donned. We've reviewed Jesus's identity as the prophet amidst his interrogation. We've reviewed his identity as king amidst his trial. And last week we examined his identity as Messiah in the midst of his crucifixion. Now for this final week, we are going to be looking at his identity as the son of God in the midst of the event that is his ultimate death. So before we begin, I want to break up a little bit this title, the Son of God, because especially in the book of Mark, this is an important title and it's thematically woven throughout the book. In the the very first verse in the book of Mark, Mark lays out his thesis. This is Mark 1.1. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God beginning in the very first verse of Mark and continuing throughout this book is this message Jesus is God's son Now without going into too much the nature of a relationship between father and son we should note that the Bible's first use of the book of the word love is in describing a father's love for his child, specifically in the book of Genesis, Abraham's love for his son, Isaac. Now we often say, God is love, and that's even outside of the church. In the, in the zeitgeist of regular culture, people commonly say, God is love. But biblically, the archetype of love is exemplified in the love of a father, toward his son. That's a relationship of protection. That's a relationship of provision. And it's a relationship of sacrifice. A father's love for his son is one of sacrifice. Now back to the book of Mark. There are a few odd cases where Jesus is pegged as the Son of God by supernatural antagonists, by demons. Mark 3.11 says that evil spirits were calling him the Son of God. In Mark 5, the demoniac known as Legion calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God. But those odd cases aside, there are three primary events in which Jesus is proclaimed as the Son of God. And in these three cases... Jesus is portrayed not simply to be linked to God by heredity, but bound to God in a loving relationship between Father and Son. Mark writes all three of these events, tying together three common components. And these three common components are in each of these three proclamations of Jesus as Son. And this is all intro, so stick with me. Uh, The first one is at Jesus' baptism. It's Mark 1, verses 9 through 11, which says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the first of those events and the three components that are found here are one, a strange supernatural environmental shift. The heavens, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. And then the second one is there's some sort of manifestation, a a visible sign of Jesus's identity. In this case, the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and then there is the proclamation. God says here, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now the second proclamation is at the Mount of transfiguration, that's in chapter 9 verses 2 through 7, it says, and after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, it it has those three components again. It's got that supernatural environmental shift. A cloud overshadows the disciples. Jesus also has this sort of visible manifestation of his identity. His clothes become white. He's transfigured, transformed, and appears to be heavenly. And then the message. The voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the last of these three proclamations is going to be in this morning's passage. So let's go ahead and read it. Again, this is Mark chapter 15, verses 34 through 47. It says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, iloi, iloi, lama Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing that said, "'Behold, he is calling Elijah.' And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying, "'Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down.' And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, "'Truly this man.'" was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in the Galilee, when Jesus was in the Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Moving on to verse 42. And when evening had come, bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are going to break this passage apart in three points. And the first point you can If you're taking notes, title it "The Forsaken Son." The Forsaken Son. Now, we have to understand that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God in a very public way. It's important to note that his claim to be the Son of God is central to his condemnation to the cross. It's central. It's primary on his rap sheet. It is the reason why he's condemned to the cross, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, the, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, they had personal reasons to condemn Jesus. They wanted to destroy him, Mark says. But personal reasons are not going to get Jesus executed by the Roman government these elders, scribes, and chief priests had to scramble to find Jesus guilty of a capital offense. So according to Jewish law, they determined blasphemers to being... uh, Blasphemy is a crime punishable by death in the Jewish law at this time. And so when Jesus is being tried, they're trying to find all sorts of different ways to to prove that Jesus has committed blasphemy. They try to say, oh, well, he, he, cursed, he cursed the temple, he dismissed the temple, but they couldn't get any testimonies to, to agree with one another. And it's in Mark 14, verses 60 through 64, that this council seals Jesus' fate and condemns him to death. Mark 14, verses 60 through 64. I'm going to read it for you. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these matters these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Did you hear the question, the accusation? Jesus, are you the son of the blessed? When Jesus says yes, that's when they secure Jesus's guilt, uh, at least in their point of view, and say that he's deserving of death. One more example. This is in John 19, 6 through 8. It's an account of Jesus uh, as he's being tried before Pilate. It says, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, saw Jesus, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify! As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Listen to this. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because... He claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and said, Where do you come from? Now, by the time we get to the passage we read this morning, Mark chapter 15, Jesus' claims to be the Son of God are public knowledge. They are central to the case that has condemned him to the cross. What we read this morning Follows after Jesus has been already hanging on the cross for about six whole hours, and verse thirty three tells us that darkness falls on the land. There's that environmental, supernatural, environmental shift. But then Jesus cries out, "Eloi, Eloi, lama Shabbatani, which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Now this is one of those rare places where Jesus's actual words are recorded in the original language and not translated. For, for our eyes in, into English, and that's because you have to see what Jesus phonetically said in order to understand why the onlookers misunderstood what he'd meant by it. Now, we are not going to take the time to, to exegete what Jesus's words meant. We did that last week in last week's sermon. If you missed it, I would totally encourage you to go listen to that at another time. Justin did a great job breaking through that. What we're going to do this morning is we are going to examine the opinions of the onlookers. They heard Jesus say Eloi. And according to uh, theologian Bob Utley, that would have probably been pronounced closer to Elijah. Do you hear how that phonetically sounds like Elijah? Elijah, Elijah. So they think Jesus has called out to Elijah. Now, who's Elijah? Elijah is this prophet from Second Kings. He never died. Uh, well, he's in First Kings as well. But in Second Kings, there's this account in chapter 2 that Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. And then about 400 years before Jesus was born, a prophet named Malachi said this. This is Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. By Jesus' day, the interpretation of this passage was that Elijah would come back to earth, because remember, he didn't die, he was removed from earth, that Elijah would come back to the earth, and that would be a sign of the Messiah's arrival, of, of God's day of judgment. Now, these onlookers, when they hear Jesus call out for Elijah, they think to themselves, oh my gosh, maybe this is it. Maybe Jesus is who he claims to be, and he's calling out to Elijah. Maybe Elijah will come down and rescue him. And so they send Jesus a a sponge that's soaked in sour wine, and then they, they give it to Jesus, and then they lean in. They're watching and waiting to see if God will see to it that his son would be rescued supernaturally. Surely that would prove to the onlookers that this was really God's son. But the surprise is, Jesus isn't rescued. In the fact that Jesus isn't rescued, he doesn't meet his critics' conventions of what God's son would be. The people at the crucifixion assume that surely God would rescue his son from trouble. Here and now, they're leaning in and they're they're willing to listen and, and see if Jesus will prove himself to be the son. But what they don't understand is Jesus is not the nepotistic son of privilege. He's a son of service. He isn't the rescued son. He is the obedient son. Now, if you're taking notes, this brings us to our second point. Jesus is the obedient son. If you're taking notes, go ahead and title this portion Jesus is the obedient son. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you may rec- remember that we've been talking about how Mark is intentionally organizing this narrative to highlight the ironies of people's behaviors and the things that they say. Now, that, that's why we titled this series Paradox, because everything is topsy-turvy. And the passage that we read this morning follows that same pattern. Those who are scrutinizing whether or not Jesus is God's son are basing their judgments on misplaced expectations. That Jesus isn't rescued from the cross is not proof that he's not God's son. It is in fact proof that Jesus is God's good son because he's participating in his father's plan to redeem humanity. Now, like Pastor Andy brought up this morning, from the first sin committed by the first humans, according to the Bible, that's Adam and Eve, it's been God's prerogative to restore the lost relationship between him and humanity, his children. In, in Luke uh, ver- chapter 3, verse 38, Luke calls Adam the son of God. God sees humanity as the race of his children from the first sin that was committed by them, um, there was this strain, this separation between God's children and their Heavenly Father. It, this, this separation is visible in the fact that Adam and Eve hid from God. They lied to God. They were exiled from the garden that God had prepared for them. But their greatest expression of Adam's and Eve's separation from God is the fact that one day they would die. That is the culmination, the ultimate expression of separation between humans and God. Now, God, according to His plan, promised to send a Messiah to heal this separation. But in order to do so, the Messiah would have to experience the depths of human isolation In full. Jesus would have to experience what we experience in life. He would have to have the fullness of that, even though, unlike us, he didn't deserve it. The Bible presents Jesus as this Messiah and says that his crucifixion was his as well as his father's foolproof strategy to relieve humans of their abandonment. In Philippians 2.8, Paul says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, with that groundwork laid, let's go back to the scene of the cross. As previously discussed, the bystanders, Jesus' critics, wanted to see Jesus rescued from the cross as proof of his sonship. But in reality, Jesus remaining on the cross was him completing the task that his father had laid out for him. Even the seemingly insignificant details that happen because Jesus is hanging on the cross is fulfilling prophecies. The person who gave Jesus sour wine, as Jesus was hanging there, it was fulfilling a prophecy foretold in Psalm 69, which said, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And that's a prophecy written some thousand years before Jesus was even born. So while Jesus remained on the cross, he's fulfilling these prophecies like individual tasks that his father has set before him. But there is one remaining task that the father has asked of his son. And his obedient son will complete it. And that's the important task that is literal death. Remember, Jesus has to take on the fullness of human separation that the isolation, the alienation that humans feel, Jesus has to experience that in full and the culmination of that is death. Now, it's at the event of Jesus's death that things of significance start to happen Now, these bystanders, they thought that if Jesus was rescued, then all sorts of powerful things would happen, but it's when Jesus dies that powerful things happen. Verse 37 says as Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom At the moment of Jesus's death the temple curtain was torn the temple in Jerusalem had two curtains and either one of these curtains could be the one described here, but both of them serve a similar function and it's it's really what oftentimes curtains today Function for three words go no further, right? It's like the polyester curtain between coach and first-class go no further. You're not allowed to use these bathrooms or like those uh, plastic translucent Rubber curtains in your Safeway that says employees only customers go no further well this this curtain in the temple served a similar purpose to communicate go no further but it was much more severe. It was much more severe in construction. This this curtain was stories high, and according to scripture, it was about three inches thick. And this curtain was also more severe in purpose. This curtain wasn't just meant to keep people out of first class or keep customers from wandering where employees are meant to go. This curtain of the was supposed to keep people from going into the chambers of the temple where historically God's actual presence had dwelt. Because of the intensity of God's holiness any regular person who would be marred by imperfection would immediately die if they trifled into God's presence. So this curtain had to be there. Say, Humans go no further. If ever there was an apt visualization of humanity's isolation and separation from God, it was this curtain. Impressively constructed, beautifully designed, but horribly austere in its communication. This curtain representing separation. But Jesus' death permitted that this curtain be removed. Effectively changing that that message of go no further to separation no more. You know, some have pointed out that that Mark highlights that the curtain was torn from top to bottom shows us that it's God, the Heavenly Father from above, who's accomplished the removal of the separation between himself and lowly humanity. Now, verse 39 When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now that is the last proclamation in the book of Mark. Remember there was three? three, And they all have these three components. First being a supernatural environmental shift. Um, uh, The second being Jesus visibly manifesting something, showing his identity. And then the proclamation of Jesus' sonship. In the first one, uh, we we saw Jesus had the Holy Spirit descend upon him like the dove. The heavens were torn apart. God said, you are my beloved son. And then we have the one in the transfiguration. But let's look at this third one. The environmental shift is that darkness falls over the entire land. But the manifestation that shows Jesus' identity is not something heavenly, like the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, or like him being transfigured to be as bright in white clothing. But rather, this manifestation is Jesus' death. Jesus' death serves as the visible representation that he is who he's about to be proclaimed to be. And it's this centurion, this Gentile who was the first human to take this role. In the first two events, it's God telling people. It's God telling Jesus. It's God telling the disciples. But the centurion sees how Jesus dies, and he's able to recognize. Something just clicks. Surely this man was the son of God. Now the centurion, he didn't see the curtain in the temple torn. That happened some mile away, or or maybe even a little bit more. It's Jesus' death that communicates that this is the son of god and of course as a, as far as appearances go it's total paradox but as far as the bible is concerned and what it foretold the messiah to be and who jesus said he was jesus's death was totally fitting to to prove that he was god's good obedient son where cynics might say, "See, he's dead now. He wasn't the Son of God." The truth is, he's God's Son, which is why he was obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Now, I'm going to quickly breeze through verses 40 through 47 because, for the for the purposes of today's sermon, all all we're going to highlight there is that these details they prove to us that Jesus is certainly dead, that he's literally dead. And these these women who will eventually come and find Jesus's tomb empty, they are here in this passage to show us that they knew for a fact where Jesus was buried because they saw it happen. And we know that Jesus is dead because we know who prepared his body. And we know that Jesus is certainly dead because even Pilate, didn't believe that he could be dead yet because it was a shorter crucifixion than normal. And so he asks his centurion, is Jesus really dead? And then it's verified by a centurion. Yes, he's dead. And these, these women are going to play a prominent role in next week's passage. But for now, we're just going to just take into consideration in verses 40 through 47. It's like Mark providing proofs to the eventual scrutiny that Um, That he knows the church will will receive because they will claim that Jesus said raised from the dead. We're not going to get to that yet The final point of our study today is our adoption If you're taking notes, you can write point number three is our adoption From the time of Jesus's arrest to his death on the cross Jesus walked in the utter depths of the human condition In that time frame, he experienced rejection, isolation, the shame that so many of us know all too well. He lived out our full condition of abandonment, even to the point of death. He lived like a reject, even though in fact he was God's true son. Now, though we were created in God's image and were meant to be his children, the things that we do, the sin like Pastor Andy talked about this morning in the Catechism. The pleasures we chase, the time, the energy, the gifts of God's that we have wasted, they've left us abandoned. Not because God has rejected us, but rather quite the opposite, because we've rejected him. Now maybe you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, but when he's he's somebody who leaves his father home his father's home saying that he he effectively would prefer that his father be dead so he could be free of that bondage and, and, and go out and get everything for himself that he possibly can but then he comes back home he's found the world to be a cold, unforgiving place and he goes to his father and he says this I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, treat me like one of your hired servants You see, that's where we are in relationship to God. We were made to be his children, but we've rejected him. And we're no longer worthy to be called his sons. But Jesus looked on us with grace and compassion. And he and his father conspired together and to make us something greater than just servants, than just slaves. Jesus the Son came in obedience to make us sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father again. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Because Jesus, the perfect, loving, respectful son, voluntarily obeyed his father to the point of death, we have to accept his invitation back into the family. The world out there is cold, unforgiving. Isolation is common to humanity. It's part of the human condition. But Jesus has provided a means for us to come back home. We have to give ourselves over to His heavenly household, honor God as Father. We need to heed Him, obey Him, love Him, revere Him, receive from Him His protection, His provision, and His love. We need to honor Jesus as God's firstborn Son and follow His example and view Him with gratitude. But scripture also talks about that as one enters into the church, that means the group the, not the building, but the group of people that love God, that they are to treat the older men as fathers, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters. We're closing up here, but I, I just want to say I found that in my experience. My ex- existential crises that still come and go, even though I've been a Christian for some 20 years, those crises are mainly healed when I commune with God, the God for whom I was created to dwell with. There's this deep, intrinsic resonance that I experience as I enter into this relationship with God the Father because Jesus, the Son, provided a way. As I I spend time with God in prayer and through His Word, I'm reminded that the curtain was torn. It's no longer go no further, it's now separation no more. I'm no longer isolated, in fact, I belong. In addition, as a scripture says that everyone in the church are your mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters. The house is too crowded to ever be lonely. If you're not a Christian today, I want to close with this. I'd like to appeal to the feelings you likely have felt. The human condition familiar to all of us, that sense of longing, that need to fit in, to belong, Yet there's a this constant inundation of isolation and separation. I think because I've experienced that we have that as part of our human condition all because we were primarily made to be in relationship with God and after our relationship with God That love flows into our interpersonal human relationships. It flows out of that love. I I would welcome any non-believers this morning to consider entertaining the idea of entering into a relationship with God today by accepting Jesus as substitution for your isolation. He was isolated, so you no longer have to be. Final thing. The Apostle John says, As many as received Jesus... To them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, would you receive Jesus this morning? And would you believe on his name? Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, your death is literal. It is not metaphorical. It is also full of you didn't get close to death, you didn't swoon upon the cross, you weren't simply beaten, you died taking the fullness of, of the isolated human condition all the way to the end. And now because of that you've created a space where we can experience your loving relationship with your Heavenly Father. You've given us a Holy Spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would trade our isolation for welcome into the Father's house. Thank you for your death, Jesus. Thank you for your plan, Father. And thank you, Father and Son, for agreeing with each other for this plan and accomplishing salvation for humanity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have some time of worship. Uh, One of the songs that we're going to sing is called Grace Alone. And uh, Dustin just chose the song. It's a great song. But it has this line at the very beginning. I was an orphan lost at the fall. I would encourage you as we're having worship time today to really... uh, Really consider those words in light of the passage that we read. God bless you guys.